Many Canadians believe that we are governed and ruled by laws, laws made by our elected officials and applied and enforced by our courts. This is supposed to be how Canada operates. The truth, however, is that Canada is ruled by endless unelected bureaucrats, creating mandates and orders, affecting and controlling our everyday lives. We didn't vote for these people, and yet they are unaccountable. COVID was the harvest season for the administrative state, which is another way of saying this bloated government system of experts and technocrats. But this has been a problem in Canada for decades now. We've just been in a deep slumber. God has ordained various institutions that have limited and enumerated powers and responsibilities. Individuals must excel at self-governance. Parents provide instruction and discipline for families. The local church disciples its members and equips them to serve Christ. The state enforces God's laws and protects the rights of its citizens. When we abandon God's good design for all of these institutions, well, what we get is Canada in 2023, and it's not very pretty. So choose who you will serve, because it's either Christ or chaos. It's September 12th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is Liberty Dispatch. Hey, hey, and welcome back to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. Yes, we are very excited that you have joined us here again for the program. As always, we want to remind you that all our productions are put together through the partnership of Liberty Coalition Canada and Christian Week. LCC exists to declare Christ's justiceness and righteousness and defend those who stand for it. Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. If you want to get all our programs, you can go over the FLF Network dot com fight laugh feast network and check out all our pro programs as well as the many other wonderful programs over there and if you want to ensure that our programming continues unabated that you you can help support us get our voice out there please go over to libertycoalitioncanada.com slash donate or scan that helpful qr code at the bottom of the page there and and click on the analysis show box donate via the website it'll get everything over um to the podcast shows uh tab to christian week we really appreciate you uh doing that also we just want to let you know that if you go over to the website you will also see the fact that you can now leave a an anonymous bitcoin donation thanks to our friends over at bull bitcoin so we do have that option for you if you would want to do that and we are so thankful um, always to have comments, questions, concerns from our audience, Andrew, which you can leave to us at mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. And do you, for us today, Andrew, have a question that you want to put for the mailbag question? Yeah. Uh, so for our next episode on Thursday, we're going to talk a little bit about the party formerly known as the Conservative Party Convention that happened <laughs> over the weekend. So what I want to know is what do you think about it? Let us know. Mm -hmm. Reach out to us. Mailbag at LibertyCoalitionCanada.com. Give us your thoughts on the convention, on the Conservative Party. What do you think? Is there something that you want to ask us about that we need to address or we need to speak to? Something that came out that concerns you? Let us know. 
Uh, also, uh, we want to make sure that all of our stuff, so all of our shows, so our show, Open Mic, The Other Club, when you're searching for these shows, you have to make sure you look under the Liberty Dispatch feed. So when you're on Podbean or if you're on Spotify or wherever you're looking for our stuff, they all fall under the Liberty Dispatch feed and you'll find everything. So don't search for the individual shows. Just search Liberty mm-hmm. Dispatch and all of our shows will be there. That's where you can find them and make sure you go and download the new Pub TV app. It is renamed. If you look for FLF app or FLF network, you will not find it. It is Pub TV, newly updated app, real clean, very sleek. Mm-hmm. couple events we want to bring to your attention before we move on. As we've been saying, October 23rd and 24th will be live episodes for Liberty Coalition Canada. The 23rd, we're going to be at Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo. And on the 24th, we're going to be at Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington, both of the events are 7.30 to 9.30. Live in person will be Mike, Tim, Matt, and myself, pending the arrival of twins. Yeah. Really up in the air. I love the show. I love hanging out with these guys. Two new babies takes precedence, so that'll Fair have enough. to get first dibs. There's going to have some other special guests. $25 per person. More info's coming out soon. Just for now, if you're in the area, you're willing to make a trip, Try to book off those two nights, the 23rd and the 24th of October. Also, with the Spark Leadership Conference, it is taking place October 31st to November 1st. It hopes to spark the American church into flame as we testify about walking according to the Word of God in the context of secular authoritarianism and exposing Christians to great teaching and godly examples. Speakers include our own Michael Thiessen, Dr. Joe Boot, Pastors Tim Stevens, and Nate Wright, who is now the Canadian Director for the Ezra Institute, and our own James Kitchen. Tickets are $50 in beautiful South Carolina. You can get them, sparkconferences.org. Go check it out. Get your tickets. You want to you wanna be at this conference. Do you ever get concerned about your financial future? Do you worry if you'll have enough for retirement? or if you'll ever be able to buy your first home. Investing can be scary, but what if it didn't have to be this way? What if you had an advisor that was a Christian just like you? Someone that you can openly talk to about your faith, your goals, and your concerns. Well, Rocklink Investment Partners is here to help you navigate financial uncertainties. Email rocklink at info at rocklink.com. Or visit them today, www.rocklink.com. That's a link with a C. Well, Matt, the growing bureaucracies and the soft totalitarianism of the state is something our guest today has written and spoken about quite extensively, including a recent article in the Brownstone Institute, which is why we wanted to have him on and have with us one Bruce Party. Bruce is the executive director of Rights Pro, that's rightsprobe.org, and professor of law at Queen's University. He's one of the authors of the Free North Declaration, a call to arms to protect civil liberties from COVID irrationality and overreach, which, as we have seen and will see, apparently has not subsided just yet. He's taught at law schools in Canada, the United States, and New Zealand, practiced civil litigation, served as adjudicator and mediator of the Ontario Environmental Review Tribunal, 
and is senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. It is always good to have you on the dispatch with us. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So your your article with the Brownstone Institute, it, it came across my desk a few weeks ago and it stood out to me. And when I saw the, the title before I saw the author, you came to mind because we've had this discussion before. You've talked about this before. And the name of your article, which we've linked to as well in the description, is Anatomy of the Administrative State. I highly recommend everyone go and read it. And so I, I, we wanted to have you on the show to talk about this because it appears that there is a ramping up of sorts that the administrative state in some regard might have taken a little bit of a nap in some ways, but now it's awoken from its slumber before people get too free and have, 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 have too much room to wiggle. And so with that article in mind, for people in our audience who might not be familiar with that term or with this kind of language, how do you define what is the administrative state? Right. Okay. Good question to start with. Uh, and I should mention that the brownstone piece you're referring to is a, uh, it's an essay in a book uh, called Canary in a COVID World, which features 30-odd essays from um, a whole group of prominent uh, COVID skeptics from the beginning of this, this debacle, uh, in case your listeners are interested. The administrative state, let's look at it this way. If we this is sort of a civics reminder of 101. Uh, if you divide the state up into three bits, we have legislatures to which people are elected. We have courts, and we all know what a court is. And then we have the administration or the executive branch. The executive branch is everything else. Everything that's not a court or a legislature is the executive. And it includes all the things you think of when you think about government. You, it, it includes the cabinet, it includes ministries and departments and agencies and tribunals and regulators and inspectors and law enforcement and municipalities even. Municipalities look like they're democracies, but they are in fact a part of the executive branch of government because we only have two pure legislative bodies, parliament, the federal one, and the provincial legislatures. Those are the only two constitutional legislatures. Everything else that they create is a part of the executive branch. So when you think about government, most of it is administration. Most of it is the executive branch. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the powers that that all of those public bodies have taken on. And, and you'd think that there's conflict. So one of the reasons that we split the state up into these three bits is to protect us all from the rule of persons. This is the basis of the rule of law. Yes, the rule of law, the original idea was when the king ruled England, we said this is a long period of evolution, of course, but the problem with that was that you've got concentrated power in one person. And so one of the solutions to that is to dilute the power and say, well, we're going to give different powers to different organizations so that none of them have the power to dictate alone what we're gonna do. So legislatures pass laws, courts apply the laws to particular disputes, and the administrative branch is in theory allowed to do only that what the legislature provides. So they can enforce, they can execute, they can carry out the mandate in the statute that the legislature passed, but that is all they can do. Powers are supposed to be very limited. And instead, in this modern era, Everything's been turned on its head. 
and the the foundation, if you like, of our modern system of government is that the executive branch, all these administrative agencies, shall have the discretion to make policy and tell us all what to do in the public interest. That has become the governing idea, and that is a contrary idea to the foundation of the rule of law that we thought we had. And and Bruce, before we move on, I just want to touch on that point that you just made right there, because I think a lot of people, I, I think they have basic civic understanding, like you just laid out that there's this kind of three, like the tripartite division of, of, of government power, right? Judicial, legislative, um, executive, or administration. Um, so they have that understanding. They have a basic understanding of how that works. But you know, this is the really insidious and undemocratic nature of the nanny state of this administrative state that you're touching on is embedded in this administrative apparatus is essentially the ability to be judge, jury, and executioner within mm-hmm. those different branches. So all these regulative bodies, all these administration like tentacles that weave their way through our society, they have the power to actually be essentially the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive all in one regulatory body. So maybe you can touch on how is that actually subversive to a democratic ideal? Right. Okay, very good question. Uh, so so Hayek put this very well. He says, look, we, we, we can say that laws and not persons rule because the legislature can only pass general rules the general rules in the statute, and they passed those rules without knowing the specific events or disputes that the, those rules are going to be applied to. They're, they're blind. They've, they've, they've legislated for future events that haven't happened yet. And the courts, for their part, in theory, uh, have to apply those rules made by the legislature, by somebody else, to the disputes now in front of them. So they are not supposed to be able to say, well, we have this dispute, let's decide what to do about this. That's not in their control, in theory. In theory, the rules that were passed before are the ones you must apply. And then for the administration or the executive branch, their hands are even more tied, in theory, because their specific marching orders are only those contained in the statute. The executive branch is supposed to be able to do essentially nothing, nothing, unless it says so specifically in a statute, okay? And that's that's how we're all protected from the individual tyrannies of individual bureaucrats who say, well, today you shall do this. Now, how do we get from that to where we are? Well, Part of the rationale for splitting this thing up into three is that they would act as checks and balances on each other, and they would be jealous even of each other. And don't get me wrong, they still have their disputes, but for the most part, these three branches of government are on the same page, and they are facilitating. The legislature and the courts are facilitating the control of the nanny state, and here's how they do it. The legislature, when they're passing these statutes, are now in the habit of delegating in the statute rule-making authority to 
the executive, to the administration. In other words, they say, here's a statute on whatever. There's a section in it that says, and, you know, the governor and council, which means cabinet, can make regulations about all these things. And the minister can make decisions about all of these things. Or this agency can decide these long list of things. And when you actually look at it, the actual rules that apply to people day to day are more likely to be in these delegated rules, the subordinate legislation, than in the actual statute. It is the executive branch now that's making the rules instead of the legislature with the legislature's approval. And for the and and the courts, for their part, it used to be that the courts uh, took the attitude that their job was to keep public bodies, that is the administration, within the specific powers that the statute uh, provided. But today, the the prevailing trend is to defer, defer to the judgment of the administrative body. Why? Well, because after all, the administration, the bureaucrats, the experts, the technocrats, they are the ones with the expertise. And we, the judges in the court, we don't have that expertise. So we want to keep our hands off it. We're going to allow the administrative body to do what it thinks best in the public interest. Even if, even if what they're doing is maybe not strictly within the powers that were granted in the statute, we don't want to look too carefully at that. We want to keep our hands off. We want to defer. So when you put these three things together, well, two things lead, lead to a, leads to a, a third thing. The two things are delegation from the legislature in the statute, deference from the court leads to a very broad discretion on the part of the administration. And then they go off and they they call the shots. So this, I mean, it's it's clear to see that specifically in the last three to five years, this, the average life of the everyday, like the everyday lives of Canadians are affected more by bureaucracies and unelected officials than they are by actual legislative changes in the criminal code or with bills being passed. And we've seen this, and I think a lot of people could agree, yeah, we've seen mandates, which are not laws. We've seen restrictions and guidelines, which have been pushed down. But I think the average Canadian would say, and and, and, uh, you might agree with this, yeah, but that's only been the last three to five years. Before that, <laughs> it wasn't quite as it, as bad. Like it wasn't the same where you'd have all these unelected officials and experts telling us what to do. So if we kind of broaden out our our timeline outside of the last three to five years, where it's easy for us to pick examples, what are some maybe what's what's what are some of your favorite and and I use that ironically <laughs> favorite examples of this growing, bloating managerial state that affects the lives of Canadians every day that they might not realize is an example of a growing administrative state that maybe they were asleep. Maybe they were the frog inside the pot and the water started to increase its temperature. Now it's boiling. So where can we see that maybe in the last 50 years, an example where we can help our audience and they can help others realize, oh, this has been, this, this play has been going on for a while it's i mean it's been intense in the last three to five years but it is the case that my life is much more affected by experts and bureaucrats than it is by actual laws being made 
Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, th- this this has been going on for decades, decades. I mean, it's it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment that the administration, administrative state came online. And it's happening. This is not just a Canadian thing. This is happening across the Western world. It's, it's happening across the Anglo-American world. Uh, some people trace the administrative state in the U.S. to the New Deal. Uh the impetus was the the, the Great Depression. Uh, in the UK, uh, some say that, well, maybe not where that began, but certainly at the end of World War II, uh, the UK, instead of, I mean, during the war, everything was, you know, very much controlled by government. And at the end of the war, when they were victorious, you know, beaten, beaten down, but victorious, they just doubled down on the degree of state control that they had gotten used to. Um, so, so this has been going on for a long time. Co- COVID, COVID may have been the peak, you know, the, the the peak achievement, at least so far, of the administrative state. But it's it, it and it came on suddenly. It seemed to, but in a sense, it was the culmination of this trend that has been going on for years and years and years. And if you want to take some examples, just just think of, just think of any kind of policies or programs or the like that, that that come online from the government. My my favorite one, because it's the one I've had the most contact with, is the way environmental policy is done. All right? So you have a statute, the Environmental Protection Act. It's a material statute. It appears to set out, you know, the basic rules about how the environment is going to be governed. But it doesn't actually do that. The actual policies and rules about what's going to happen is, are in the hands of the Ministry of the Environment. So if you want to understand what the policy on this is going to be or the policy on that, you can't just look at the statute because the statute won't tell you. What you really have to do is communicate with the Ministry of the Environment to see if they have policies or guidelines or what this particular officer says or this particular you know policy analyst says. I mean, they are making the, the rules on the go, essentially. They're deciding sometimes on a case-by-case basis you know here's a situation well what are we going to do about that situation well that sounds to 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 a mind that is used to the administrative state that sounds eminently reasonable but it's not if you believe in the rule of law because here's what's happening you have a bunch of people with the power now deciding essentially what the rules are and what the outcome is going to be in this particular case. That is exactly contrary to the idea of the rule of law where everything is separated. You need rules first. Rules are established. Hayek says rules that are fixed and announced beforehand. If you go to this environment situation and you have people sort of making things up on the go, case by case, because they need to know the facts of the situation before they know what the proper thing to do is, that is not the rule of law. But that's how much of government policy, government programming, government supervision, government enforcement works now. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people really have appreciated um, the fourth president of the United States of America, James Madison, and his historic quip, right? He said, if men were, you know, angels, no government would be necessary. But the counterpart to that is that governments are also made up of sinful, self-interested men. And that's, Madison goes on to say, the great difficulty lies in this you must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself and what you're saying is we now exist in a regime despite the fact that we wear this husk this hollowed out husk this skin suit of you know uh, a, a nation that is predicated on the rule of law we are now ruled by men and their arbitrary dictates and we are essentially ruled by this unbound executive um, and its various tentacles in these bureaucracies and that is anti-democratic because all these people that you're talking about bruce they're unelected officials they're not Mm -hmm. directly accountable to the voter like the legislature is actually accountable so that really disenfranchises canadians across this nation no matter what political side you are on of your actual say in our country's governance. And that's why this is a, a this should be a bipartisan issue that Canadians unite on because we're going to say, hey, we're going to take back the power and the voice that we have as actual Canadian citizens in this democratic process. But we're asleep at this wheel when it comes to understanding these things. Well, yes, but it's even worse than that. If I can put it this way. Please. <laughs> okay. Because this is a consensus. And the problem is that our democratically elected institutions are facilitating this. So when your MPPs or your MPs sit down in their chambers and they they vote in these statutes, the statutes are the things that contain these long lists of delegated authority. So... I mean, the the legislatures could roll this back if they wanted to. They don't want to. They they believe in the administrative state. In fact, I would guess that most Canadians believe in the administrative state. It's the only thing they've ever known. I would guess that most Canadians think that the administrative state is what government is. I mean, what else is there for them to do? The job of government in the minds of many people is to manage society. That is what the administrative state is doing. And in order to overcome the administrative state, the first step is to persuade people that that idea is wrong, that it is not appropriate for governments to manage society. If you want to live in an actually free society, then you do not have bureaucrats making policies telling you what to do. And that's a very big leap for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Because like you said, this is just the context that we were growing, we grown up in like fish don't know they're wet. Right. Right. And, and as Canadians, we don't know that we're 
enslaved to this system of government that was never ever in the minds of our founders and that was actually contrary to many of the principles that created the western world in the freeness that we have enjoyed it for for centuries now so outside of outside of the last three to five years when i think about a time in my lifetime at least where there was a a swelling, if you will, or a, a surge, a growth in the administrative state. I think about events shortly after 9-11. Now, as of time of recording, it's the 22nd anniversary of 9-11 in the United States. Now, some will say, and I, I'm one of them, that this event, which was woefully tragic and was 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 an was an awful event in history and in the history of the United States that this event prepared the ground for the massive growth or a surge of growth in the administrative state in the United States with things such as the TSA, which comes into being after 9-11, and also the Patriot Act, which to the best of my knowledge hasn't been entirely rescinded. So the question that, that I have to help our audience understand, because you mentioned already, Bruce, the Great Depression, another event in history that was tragic that was destructive we've mentioned covid is the pretext as well what's the connection between these kinds of events and circumstances and the growth of the administrative state or what is it about these events mm. that prepares the soil so yes. that the administrative state can grow and that we can see this kind of this bitter fruit given to us right Right. And, and of course, these three things that we've mentioned are quite different, right? One, one, one is economic, one is terrorism, and one is a, 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 an alleged pandemic. But the one thing they all have in common is necessity, right? Necessity is the favorite excuse for people who want to expand the powers of the state. I mean, because after all, if we don't, if we don't do that, then we're going to be susceptible to these kinds of things in the future. And it is in those moments when keeping to this idea of the rule of law is most difficult, when it's most important. If you just do away with it when it seems to be necessary, it will end up always being necessary. And that's essentially where we're at now, because the next necessity is going to be climate change. I mean, climate change has no more actual validity to it than the COVID thing did. But it doesn't really matter what the facts are now. It's a perceived and, and, and propagandized crisis. And that crisis is going to, to fuel the claim that it is necessary for government to take on emergency powers, or even, even if they're not called emergency powers, to take on more control of what happens, what you do, how you drive, how you live, what you heat with, what you, how you cook. All of these things are going to be excused under the guise of necessity in exactly the same way that the putting aside of, of due process and other kinds of, of, of well-established prerequisites for government action that happened uh, after 9-11. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the scary part is we're, we're sitting here trying to make this appeal. This is not normal, guys. This administrative state is not normal. It's it's corrosive of our freedoms. It's it, it's it's dangerous to the life, liberty, and property of every human being created in the image of God. But the flip side of this coin, as we're trying to wake people up to this conversation, have this conversation, make these appeals, this mm-hmm. at the same time the government hasn't seen COVID and a lot of the pushback that has come of it as an opportunity. Oh, Hey, maybe we have to scale back our push to an administrative state. No, we're seeing the, the just as you see, you use the UK as an example, we, it, the first and second world war really created this administrative state uh, where you ha- of necessity needed to mobilize a lot of things. And since then, we've all lived in a wartime economy, a, a wartime state where they kind of marshal and govern um, uh, government resources in that way. It, instead of rolling that back after the war, they just continue that on. And now that's what we're seeing. We're actually, instead of seeing government officials and bureaucrats say, okay, now's the time. I think people are fed up. Let's take our hands off the switch. No, it's actually, here's another reason why we have to create even more bureaucracies, why we have to manage your lives even more and more and more. So given that the fact that that's actually the context that we're existing in is that the government is looking for more ways to expand their Leviathan-like reach, what can Canadians do? Is there anything that Canadians can do to push back against the growth of the administration and and not see us become like 1984? Or, you know, even just a historical example, not using a fictional example, the, the long, slow decline of the Roman Empire that was a, a, a once great republic, but because of necessity, as you said, they gave power over to a Caesar, and then that Caesar put forward an empire, and then that 400 years of decline that they experienced was slow and it was a decay. What can we do as Canadians to push back against this behemoth? It's going to be very difficult. Uh, the, 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 the first requirement, I think, as I alluded to earlier, is is an idea. You, you as long as the people have the idea in their heads that the, the administrative state is a necessity, that it's essentially a good thing, and that we are in a kind of civilization that requires it, then you got no place to go. It's only when some of the critical mass of people decide that actually, even though we're used to this, even though I grew up with it, this is not the way I want to live my life. But even when you get... Uh, a, a certain portion of the public thinking that way, which is going to be no small deal. You've got other really substantial problems like this. The managers, if I can put them that way, are the elite. They, they've become the the aristocracy. They are they are the 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 the, the ascendant class in society. Uh, the, the the ones who make policies, they make programs, they decide what's going to happen. If you are looking for status and security and even wealth in this culture, that's the kind of person you want to do. And you'll notice that in many programs at universities now, 
making policy or analyzing policy or making decisions about what people ought to do is what a lot of people learn now. People who are graduating from sociology departments and political science degrees and and you know a lot of the a lot of the um, arts and arts and social science programs that's what they know how to do and so when they go out into the workforce that's what they think they're going to be doing well what else is there what else are they going to do that's what they're trained for unlike what we think is the basis of this economy which is entrepreneurs and innovators the 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 ability of entrepreneurs and innovators to do those things without harassment and obstacles from the administrative class. Very difficult. I mean, there's, there was, there's a, you, you occasionally see articles and such in, in, in the media or online with titles such as, you know, we're, 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 we're from the government and we're here to break your spirit. If you look at all the requirements that are there for anybody who wants to build a company, they're extraordinary because it is the managers that are the elite class, not the industrialists, not the entrepreneurs, not the innovators. We have, we have become a management society. And in order for this to change, you essentially need a new kind of elite. Mm-hmm. A, a, a disinterested elite, right? A, an elite that actually values what we like. I mean, we used to call people who worked for the government uh, civil servants because they were there to serve the interests of the citizenry. Now, we still use yep. that moniker, but it's obviously ridiculous. But that's what we're looking for. And that's why I think we have to have more conversations like this, Bruce, because though we have our disagreements uh, philosophically, theologically, uh, between us, I think there's such a small group of us who are you know as the book that you wrote this article for would suggest that are canaries in the coal mine that are those gadflies who are saying this cannot continue this is contra everything canada was about up until recent history um we really need to band together and and raise a clarion voice to say throw off the shackles of this overweening executive and, and live your lives in freedom, uh, individuals and, and families and churches. And that's, that's what we're all about on the program. And that's where our, our mandate and yours really intersect is to just call people to, to, to get, to get out of this mindset and, and to push back against it. So Bruce, we're so thankful for all you do uh, with rights probe, with the various many different things that you're involved with. And we really do just love having you on because I feel like every time we have you on, it's like, okay, we have to have another conversation about something that was raised in this conversation that we have to dig deeper into. So we really, really appreciate all that you do, Bruce. And, and we wish you the best. Bruce, where well, can thank people you. find you? I'm very, I'm very grateful for the invitation. It's always great to talk to you, so I hope yeah. you can do it again. Where can people find you, Bruce? Where can they follow you? Where are you on social media uh, or rights probe social media? Where can we direct our audience? Right. Thanks for asking. Um, our website is rightsprobe.org, and my Twitter handle is uh, at PartyBruce. Awesome. Okay. It's always a party with Bruce. Okay, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so, so much. much. again, Bruce. Yes. yes. Yeah. guys. Cheers. What if there was a way to trade your resources and skills for whatever things you need and want without using money? Well, that's exactly what we have with Barterit, 
a web app where anyone can connect person to person and barter with each other. You don't have to keep track of who owes what, and you won't get the headaches that come with straight one-on-one -on -one bartering. Just create your profile on the Barter It web app, offer up your skills or products to earn bits in your private wallet, and use your bits with anyone else in the Barter It community. $1 Canadian is equal to one bit for valuation purposes. Head over to libertycoalitioncanada.com slash barter and click on Barter It for Individuals to learn more and sign up today. Make sure you become a VIP and get $1,500 worth of perks and bonuses, including 1,000 bits to be used in the Barter It community for only $197. Join the community, libertycoalitioncanada.com slash barter. Now, the administrative state believes that it can tell you what to wear and what to do with your own face, especially, it seems, right now in British Columbia. So the <laughs> province course. is considering reintroducing a mask mandate in healthcare facilities as the cold and the flu and COVID season arrive, which is really the cold season. So just, just as normal viruses make their way through the world, hospitals are freaking out and want to muzzle you yet again mm -hmm. now it's been five months since bc ended its mask mandate at healthcare sites but provincial health officer dr bonnie henry warns ooh, right like bruce was talking about the crisis ooh, the necessity COVID, yeah covid cases have recently tripled in bc which again i mean the pcr Who test is junk. How, who's even who's even anyways okay so BC Health Minister Adrian Dix has said, quote, Dr. Henry will be looking at this question with respect to the wearing of masks and healthcare facilities. We felt it was important during this period where COVID cases were relatively lower that we have a period where doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and people could see each other's faces. And that has value. But that's an issue Dr. Henry will be looking at. So, I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about this unelected health bureaucrat saying, we thought it would be good for you to be able to see other faces, right? We, we can tell you when to cover your face. So now we mm -hmm. thought, you know what? Let them have their cake and circus and faces. Let <laughs> yeah. them have their, their cake and faces, Yeah, right? Because yeah. while you're eating cake, you can pull a mask down because yeah. COVID stops when you're eating cake. So have mm -hmm. your cake and your circus and your faces. Mm -hmm. But now... Oh, maybe now we, we got to take that face back again. So, but and, and notice just the arbitrary nature of all of that, right? They, just felt like it. they get to, yeah. Oh, we wanted to give these little peons the ability to see each other's face so they don't feel so depressed as they have felt over the last three years. So we and gave you a the little next, reprieve. The rest of their lives. Yeah. yeah, we gave you a little reprieve. So don't say that us, the bureaucrats of benevolence, don't do anything for you, okay, Andrew? You got to see your mom's face at least a few times. So, so the silly. province is expected to unveil a fall vaccination campaign as early as next week, urging people to get a booster and mandatory masking at hospitals may be a part of that, will probably be a part of that. You need your seventh booster because who needs veins and arteries without blood clots, right? Who needs a fully functioning heart? Who needs one of those? Get eight boosters. Who who needs to who needs to live past 60? So, quote, this is from uh, Health Minister again, Adrian Dix, quote, COVID-19 has not gone away. It's still there. There are new variants. 
There will be new variants, and we have to continue to take action as we live our lives within the context of COVID-19. We have to continue to take action and be prudent. And that means staying home when you're sick, washing your hands, wearing masks where appropriate, and having an immunization campaign that leads the world. And that's what we need to do in BC. I'm having... I'm, I, I don't know whether it's COVID or deja vu, but I feel like I got a case of something. I feel like there's a fever, and unfortunately, the prescription isn't just more cowbell. Although more cowbell, more cowbell might help, but I feel like that's not all I need right now to deal with a case of the COVID deja vu. It's apparently more right and more and more administrated bureaucrats arbitrarily dictating how we ought to live our lives. Like, mm-hmm. the funny part is, it's interesting. So you and, and by I, funny you mean by funny you mean we're holding back tears. It's so sad. yes, horribly yeah. depressing and yeah. A- angry. Yes, um, like so, right. The people like us, Andrew, who are freedom minded, we were saying, like, guys, we need to be adults about this. Like, COVID's here to stay, okay? It's not a virus that's going away. It's attenuated to the point that it's not dangerous. So let's stop freaking out about it. But the reality that COVID's here to stay actually gives these administrative bureaucrats the excuse of necessity to keep going back to the well and running the same play over and over and over and over and over again. And as Canadians, unless we're going to throw off the shackles of these individuals, we're going to have to succumb to their arbitrary dictates over and over and over again. It's, it's crazy. Anyways, Andrew, this comes on the heels of several hospitals in Ontario. That's where you live introducing, um, Reintroducing, I should say, mass mandates once again. And this comes from True North. The Ottawa Hospital is bringing back a mandatory mass mandate for all clinical areas as of September 11th, which is actually today uh, as of time of recording, according to a statement posted to X, formerly Twitter, on Thursday. Quote, as we prepared for the respiratory virus season, where we anticipate an increased transmission of influenza, COVID-19, and RSV, the Ottawa Hospital will be updating some of our measures and supports to protect patients, staff, and members of the public, the statement reads. Beginning September 11th, masking will be required in all clinical areas and waiting rooms. Clinical areas include inpatient units, patient rooms, nursing stations, and ambulatory care areas. Masking will continue to be encouraged but optional in all other non-clinical areas. It continued. These requirements will be in place for the duration of the respiratory virus season. And we should add to that our entire lives come fall and winter. It just so happens that <laughs> it just so happens that in in the in the COVID era, the respiratory virus season 
is until you die. <laughs> yes, that's there's it's, a, it's in there. I yeah. got a wicked cold this uh, yeah. this summer, so yeah. I. But yeah. I mean, this is 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 this not exactly what we warned against, Andrew? Is do we not say that, guys? If we accept these premises, if we go down this road, they're just gonna do the same thing all the time. The, in the, perpetuity the, the prerequisites needed for them to just flip that switch will go on forever, forever indefinitely without limit if we give it to them if we say to them yeah this this health crisis is the justification for the control mm -hmm. then all they have to do is scream health crisis and the uh, oh you're nuts <laughs> mm -hmm. no and, no and we're that's not. and and it's not as though we're prescient right people we were arguing from principle rather than pragmatism and we, mm -hmm. we and history principle and, and history exactly so we're just saying look at look at the principle that's being set out look at the precedent that is being set look at what history is showing us if we do these various things that's we're not we're not trying to be prophetic in that sense we're just reading the tea leaves <laughs> but here we are again andrew uh and the, anyways, the article goes on, if you care. I don't know if I do. It says several other hospitals are bringing back masking as well, like the Perth Smith Falls District Hospital, uh, which has reinstated mandatory masking throughout its two campuses, along with a return to masks uh, at the uh, per Smith's Fall District Hospital, uh, it said it will also resume a two-meter physical distance required. We're just re rinsing and repeating, recycling all this stuff, even if it didn't work, um, as an an appropriate proactive approach to supporting safety and well-being of all patients, visitors, and members of the, the the district hospital, said Karen Kelly, a spokesperson for the hospital. So there you see it. Hospitals, jurisdictions across our nation are ramping up to stop COVID and the spread thereof like we were in March 2020. It's So there's one particular ending. response that we want to highlight, and we've linked to this as well. Daniel Ari Freiheit is a lawyer with Line Advocacy. He sent quite a letter to the Ottawa Hospital regarding these mandates. Uh, this is from Rebel News. The letter says it is, quote, imperative that the Ottawa Hospital Board of Governors, quote, not use any force whatsoever to implement its new mask mandate. Freiheit calls on the board to, quote, issue a policy in writing and direct the hospital executive team to instruct security and police accordingly, not use force on anyone in the hospital who refuses or fails to mask up, close quote. Furthermore, the letter rightfully notes that the psychological and emotional well-being of those affected by such implementations should be considered. Those who do not want to wear a mask, Freiheit says, quote, have good authority to, re re to reply on, in brackets, given the Cochrane Review Study. Now, we've mentioned and we've linked to the Cochrane Study several times, so we don't want to go into more detail about it now. Suffice it to say, it is clear that cloth, surgical, and N95 masks provide little to really no benefit in the stopping of the spread of respiratory viruses, which, by the way, we've known for a while, thanks to guys like Denis Rancourt, who compiled together 14 different randomized controlled trials from around the world over the course of 20 years in seven different countries, concluding the same thing 
Oh, and by the way, this was all pre-2019. So again, we're not psychic. We're not prophets. We can read and we understand history and our memory goes before, like our, our memory extends before March 2020. And so, Andrew, I just want to point out these mass mandates are inhumane and that's going to lead into what I know you want to talk about next but yeah. but there's an aspect of the face that it, it, from a biblical perspective that constantly forcing people to cover it is attacking the very image in which they mm -hmm. were created and that's the article we want to link to and I want to talk about now and it's actually it was actually written in 2020 mm -hmm. it was written by David Schrock and it's titled a theology of the face how endless mask wearing hides the image of God and hinders the church. Now, high level, here are the main points. One, God created the face to reflect his glory. Two, the soul of humanity is expressed in the face. And three, the church is instructed to gather face to face. Now, what I did want to do, however, is quote from this portion of the article, which I think is important. Loving our neighbor means preaching the unveiled gospel of Jesus Christ and doing so with unveiled faces. Why unveiled faces? For the reasons stated above. The face is an essential part of humanity, and to cover it continually steals that humanity. Similarly, in the body of Christ, the face of Jesus is seen in his people. And when we wear masks for protracted periods of time, we cannot do God, we cannot do all God. Has commanded and by the way non-believers get this too now they have access to this truth because the truth because god is designed it to be this way but even non-believers understand this hmm. i was working somewhere in the midst of the pandemic and someone who was a, a a patron at said place said to me with regard to the mask issue non-believing guy something to the effect of it feels unnatural having our faces mm -hmm. covered because and what is. he was what he was getting at was something about being human. It is something about the way God has made us that it is natural and right to see each other's faces. Mm -hmm. And so what's unnatural about it is that it is inhumane in that it is a direct attack on what it means to be a human that bears the image of God that reflects his glory to the world. So this we just wanted to highlight this as a, as a bit of a resource for you and an mm. article for you to reference that this is one of the reasons why, aside from the fact that they don't work and probably do more damage than good, which mm -hmm. ample studies support that, theologically, the mm -hmm. covering of one's face in the manner that the state is telling us to do is wrong, mm. it is contra-creational, and it is damaging to the image of God in humanity. Yeah, and I think there's there's other areas of scripture that would attest to it as well. But I just want Christians to consider this one thing. What is the benediction from numbers that we hear constantly at the end of services across the world in Christian church? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, if that weren't enough, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Countenance, face shining upon you. That all has to do with God intimately gazing upon you in a favored relationship. So mm -hmm. to put this 
artificial, unnatural barrier between you and your Lord and worship is yeah. inappropriate. And that's what uh, David Schrock, I think, appropriately is mm-hmm. getting at in his article that we just wanted to highlight yeah. for and you. And every time, every time someone covers their face in the scriptures, it's either because they're legitimately with a disease or they're trying to hide their identity because they're doing something evil mm-hmm. or they're ashamed or it has to do with withholding blessing right yes. uh, david david would not allow such a person to see his face mm-hmm. and so the, 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 it, there's read the article it's really good yes and it helps to give us a good theology of why we cannot muzzle ourselves any longer absolutely Our federal government's response to economic difficulties has been to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything, essentially stealing from your hard-earned pay. They also want to monitor our spending by way of centralized digital currency, and they want to control us by way of a digital ID. So what you need to do is take control of your own resources and be responsible for your own money, which, by the way, is your responsibility. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country, you should seriously consider contacting our friends at Bull Bitcoin. Sign up today, mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC, and have all of your questions answered by a person in real time. That's Mission dot bullbitcoin.com slash lcc absolutely andrew well on the topic of the administration uh, administrative state i should say um the reality that it has grown exponentially over the past three years uh, three and a half years whatever we are at now and COVID has presented as we talked about with bruce this rich soil bed for this rotten fruit of statist growth and, and really you know the enforcement of all these arbitrary dictates rammed down our throats in that vein andrew we wanted to touch on that uh, a story and that story is um the current trial of tamara leach and christopher barber so uh last week the trial trials of tamara leach and chris uh, barber two organizers of the freedom convoy began a and Leach and Barber are charged with mischief, intimidation, obstruction, and counseling mischief not committed, counseling intimidation not committed, and counseling obstruction not committed. Barbara Barber is additionally charged with counseling to breach a court order not committed. The following synopsis is... uh, is taken from the Western Standard. So it says, On Tuesday, the court heard from Constable Craig Barlow of the Ontario Police Service, the OPS, who provided a video compilation of Serete... What is that? What is that, Andrew? Serete? Serete. Serete. I can't 
I'm you can tell I'm not French. <laughs> Surrette du Quebec, the the SDQ, um, police body cam footage from the Ottawa protest. The footage was presented as an 11-minute montage of 38 clips. However, Barlow had left out significant footage that showed the lighter sides of the protest, such as quote, people hugging, kids playing on the streets, and bouncy castles. Diane Magus, counsel for Barber, pointed out, none of that is in the video. Magus also asked Barlow if he saw any evidence of police officers using violence, such as quote, punching a man in the head for non-apparent reasons. Barlow said he did not, but after being showed a video of a police officer kneeing a protest and a protester and another police officer holding the same protester in a headlock, he admitted that he saw an officer striking a protester. So, uh, convenient, so I guess, so did right? You, did, you see, did you see any evidence of officers striking <laughs> innocent protesters? No, I didn't see. Okay, here's a video. Oh, yeah, I guess I saw. I guess I saw it. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's amazing. It's amazing that they just uh, allow them to play footage of 11-minute montage, highly curated, highly edited video clip montage for <laughs> to, to forward their narrative. Meanwhile, just conveniently leaving out a bunch of other things, right? Yeah, the, like, the, the, like eating pro- French toast in the middle of Ottawa streets in minus 30 weather, and then the maple syrup is like super thick molasses. Hey, Andrew, a great thing. How my long- hands, my hands red as I'm <laughs> the, the yeah. syrup. I can't even. That was how, a great moment. How long did the protest go on? Three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. They presented 11 minutes. Of highly curated they, videos in, in a three-week protest, eleven minutes of people probably being angry and and with F Trudeau flags, unbelievable. <laughs> like, but that's all yeah. they had in in three weeks yeah. of protest. Yeah. I just, I'm just yeah. putting that and out there. There. There, were, there were there was probably hours of officers beating innocent protesters too, more than eleven minutes. So that was Tuesday. That's how it started. <sighs> so Wednesday's testimony included Inspector Russell Lucas of the Ottawa Police Services incident commander during the Freedom Convoy protest. Lucas was tasked with minimizing the impact of the protest on the city. Lucas planned to concentrate the demonstration in a specified area on Wellington Street, which, by the way, was the agreement. This convoy organizers were working with OPS behind the scenes to ensure concentrating the trucks in a certain area. This came out during the inquiry that there was all this work to ensure that the organizers would work together with OPS to make sure that there would be limited obstruction until Lucas received a command from Peter Slawley, then Ottawa police chief, who allegedly said, we're not giving them one inch. So we saw this during the inquiry, that the convoy organizers and OPS had all these agreements and they were working together well until OPS and the Parliamentary Police Service said, nah-uh-uh, we're not going to play nice with them. So clearly the aggressors were on one side. So Lucas said, quote, the event exceeded our expectations. While the police allegedly expected only about 1,000 vehicles, there were well over 5,000 vehicles that showed up in downtown Ottawa on the last weekend of January. Quote, our resources were stretched so thin as the event grew We're not going to stop it. So how do we find a way to minimize the impacts of the city as a whole? 
Lucas said relations were good between the police and protesters in the early days of the demonstration. He told the court that he had approved and endorsed the idea to get all the trucks over to the Wellington location. For the most part, we had overall compliance, is what Lucas said, which they did. And they had agreement and were working together with the convoy organizers until it was the OPS and the PPS that said, nope, we're not no inch, no quarter, no more talks. Now it's time to be rough. That's really what played out. So that was Wednesday. On Friday, court proceedings got off to a rocky start for the Crown, uh, with the judge expressing her unhappiness with its attempt to drop excess loads of evidence on the defense with little to no time to review it. Seems like a classy move full of integrity from the Crown. The prosecution said that it submitted 4,000 pages of digital charts and messages as part of disclosure by August 1st, but is now seeking to delineate about 2,000 pages it wishes to specifically use as evidence, the Democracy Fund tweeted. Lawrence Greenspan, counsel for Leach, submitted that the Crown's approach to disclosure, what they're relying upon, and the lately brought Carter application are causing the defense to have to review already viewed disclosure, the Democracy Fund said. Quote, it's a monumental task, especially when you're in the midst of trial to say, oh, here's 2,000 more pages that uh, look both you deal with in the midst of trial. Well, oopsies. Sorry. Uh, here you go. Now deal with this. Yeah, no, it's absurd and it's procedurally out of bounds. And that's why Justice Heather Perkins McVeigh repeatedly said on Friday that she was quote, very unhappy with the prosecution's request to refine the selection of evidence on the fourth day of the trial. Such evidentiary submissions, the judge added, should have been completed by August the 1st. We're beyond that, obviously, in order to allow the defense adequate time to prepare for the Crown's argument. The judge said the Crown should have been able to clearly articulate its intent with which evidence it would like to bring forward during trial before it began. It's interesting to note that the prosecution's own evidence shows it was a peaceful protest and that it was always intended to be such. Prosecution played a series of TikTok videos by Chris Barber of the Freedom Convoy demonstration, that same Chris Barber on trial, in which he repeatedly called on his supporters to be, quote, peaceful in their protests as evidence of his alleged criminality. On Thursday, the third day of his and Tamara Leach's trial in Ottawa, Ontario, quote, Peace is the only option, said Barber in one of his TikTok videos, advising supporters of the Freedom Convoy to behave, quote, like Gandhi did. How did Gandhi behave? Nonviolent, peaceful demonstration. That's what he's he's known for. So it's important for us to understand that um, when when Barbara was calling for that, we're representing so many Canadians. Barbara said, "Those that are here physically, those that cannot be here physically, and those that are no longer with us." Barbara said in another video. 
This is love, he said in a video he recorded at the heart of the demonstration on Wellington Street in front of Parliament Hill. So there you have it, Andrew. Just like Bruce said, we have to understand, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, they are on trial for protesting while not progressive <laughs> right like th that's essentially what we're seeing here because yep. and we're, we're seeing this dual justice system play out not only in canada but but in the states right the the, the blm race riots that took place Seattle, during those riots, instituted Chaz Chop, where they literally occupied a downtown corridor of Seattle, and it turned horribly violent. They they were extremely violent from the get-go. There was all sorts of mischief. Progressives turned a blind eye to that. They supported that. But three-day peaceful protest of happiness mm -hmm. and good tidings in Ottawa, which is the seat three of week. Parliament. Three yeah, weeks. Week. Yeah, three yeah. weeks. Which which is the seat of Parliament, right? They went to the right place where to redress grievances to the government. That is apparently inappropriate, no good, very bad. And that's essentially what we're dealing with is uh, uh, things are really bad because our 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 courts are putting forth arbitrary super legislative uh, dictates by interpreting the constitution according the, to their their whims they get to decide um, when they're going to apply the living tree doctrine or when they're going to restrict just to a very narrow reading of of the textualist approach and and again that's just all in an uh, in mm. Um, an opportunity to say we are committed to progressivism and we will legislate or uh, or dictate or read into the constitution will shape the constitution to put forward our preferred political outcomes and that's what we're seeing from all branches of political government under this overweening domineering administrative state and that's well, this whole Canadians this whole trial this whole trial is what the, the whole trial exists because of the administrative state right yeah. the, the fact that you had the cult of the expert the, the cult of the scientism expert, or as I called it last episode, the witch doctor bone shaman it's telling you what the weather and the virus is going to be like just by pulling numbers out of thin air. So the cult of the expert tells us this deadly virus is going to ravage us unless we give up our freedom and put experimental medicine inside of us under the threat of force and imprisonment. And, and so you have that. And then you have all of these mandates. So what you don't have is you don't have legislative bodies doing their job in creating and passing laws in, in actually doing what, the, what they're responsible for. Everything's handed off to this expert, to this council, to this committee, to this governing body, to this bureaucrat. And you have mandates and orders and rules that come down that don't go through the natural process. You have the executive branch that supports it, obviously, because Trudeau invokes the War Measures Act. And then you have the court, which is supposed to keep that in check, affirms and says, yeah, your charter rights were violated, but it made sense because it was a really, really bad flu and everyone was coughing and you know, terrifying stuff. And because of bouncy castles in Ottawa, 
your freedoms are expunged. So this trial that's unfolding, which is anticipated to last four weeks or so, only is because of the administrative state, because of this overbloated bureaucracy that now governs our country. And as we kind of wrap this episode up in bringing this awareness to you, we want to kind of piggyback on what Bruce said, which is step one is awareness. So you need to understand mm -hmm. that this is not the way government is supposed to run. It is not supposed to be this way where we're supposed to elect people and hold them accountable to making laws that govern and making laws that represent their constituents. And when we have experts and bureaucrats who are doing the job of legislators that we elect, we're supposed to say something about it. So we're supposed to be aware of it. But the other thing that we're supposed to do and not just kind of vocalize our displeasure to our MPs and to our MPPs and to our premier and to our prime minister and to anyone else who would listen is that this is the importance of being grounded in a solid community so that you can be resilient and anti-fragile so that when the bureaucrats bring down their diktats once again, you can say, well, you know what? We're able to care for one another. Well, we don't have to bend to your every beck and whim. Mm -hmm. where we can be bold and stand up and, and we'll provide for one another. We'll care for one another. So when the hospital starts saying, put on your mask, put on your mask, put on your mask, we can say, well, you know what? Maybe we're going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going to have lots of people show up unmasked. And what are you going to do? Arrest 20 of us, mm -hmm. 30 of us, right? The reality is it's, it's time for us to abandon the apathetic, spineless, evangelical, pacifist approach. Mm -hmm. We're not about revolution. We're not about unnecessary aggression. But maybe we need to take a more proactive approach in letting people know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And we just won't stand for it and bend to the heavy hand of the administrative state. Mm -hmm. And you can do this. Family, friends, churches, communities. We implore you, see the state for what it is understand this is not how it's supposed to be and that we have a part to play both in our votes in our emails in our communication and yes even in our dissent in our actions mm -hmm. we have a role to play in letting the administrative state know that they're not our dad and they're not our nanny and they're certainly not our god and we'll we will not just sit by and let them steamroll over us the way mm -hmm. that they have we have a yeah. couple uh, last things we want to touch on before we close out matt Absolutely. And I just want to touch on that. Like, this can be a depressing episode, right? Because we're holding the mirror up to where Canada is at politically. And it's showing all the the scars, the horrible disfigurement, whatever. Um, and that can be a discouraging process. We know in our own lives, you know, it's hard to sometimes to take true account of where we stand, where we're at. But that's the first step into actually making change and implementing change in our life is to give a true and honest accounting for where we're at. And then knowing that's where we're at, making decisions that are appropriate and, and smart and um, biblically informed moving forward. So that's what I want to bring to you. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to Say once again, if you do appreciate our programming, we would hope that you would help support it by going over to libertycoalitioncanada.com slash donate. You can scan that helpful, helpful QR code at the bottom of the page. Easy for me to say. Uh, all 
all your donations that are left through the analysis and show box go uh, directly to Christian Week, who is LCC's partnership in our media. If you want to help support our other advocacy and various initiatives, go over to that same link, uh, Liberty Coalition Canada dot com slash donate and click on other designations um if you are an advertiser and you want to help us grow and and continue to fund what we're doing as we help your business grow please reach out to us at advertising at christianweek.org so we can partner with you and you can find all things that we are doing uh at on the Liberty Dispatch and our various shows, as I've already made mention, at the FLF Network. That's flfnetwork.com. Or you can check us out on the helpful new Slick Pub TV app, which you can get from your Google Play or your Apple App Stores. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Big thanks to Bruce Party and everything he's doing with uh, Rights Probe. We really appreciated him coming on. And until next time, Galatians 5.1. Liberty Dispatch has been brought to you in partnership with Liberty Coalition Canada and Christian Week and has been produced by SDG Media. You can find all things Liberty Coalition Canada at libertycoalitioncanada.com.